strikes, spreading. Royal corruption, trouble in Ireland, British capitalism is creaking at the seams and the British state is too. I'm Barnaby Rain, standing in for Michael Walker, and this is Tisky Sour. My co-conspirator in the plot to drive Michael Walker from his job tonight is Ash Sarkar, who joins me for the next hour to host the show. Ash, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Hopefully when Michael comes back, there'll be nothing for him to host, just a pile of ashes where the Tisky studio once stood and you'll have salted the earth so nothing can grow for a thousand years. A truly poetic imagination. Liz Truss has introduced the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill to the House of Commons for its second reading. If it passes, the bill will grant the government the power to ditch parts of the Northern Ireland Protocol. And according to Truss, their reason for bringing the bill is to protect peace in Ireland. We are taking this action to uphold the Belfast Good Friday Agreement, which has brought peace and political stability to Northern Ireland. The Northern Ireland Protocol is undermining the functioning of the agreement and of power sharing. It has created fractures between East and West. It has diverted trade and meant people in Northern Ireland are being treated differently from people in Great Britain. It has weakened their economic rights. This has created a sense that parity of esteem between different parts of the community, an essential part of the agreement, has been damaged. This bill will address these political challenges and fix the practical problems the protocol has created. It avoids a hard border and protects the integrity of the UK and the EU single market. It is necessary because the growing issues in Northern Ireland, including on tax and on customs, are baked into the protocol itself. Our preference remains a negotiated solution, and the bill contains a provision that allows for negotiated agreement. But the EU has ruled out, up front, making changes to the text of the protocol. At the moment, the Northern Ireland Protocol effectively keeps the North of Ireland within the EU single market by establishing a sea border between Ireland and Britain. Goods can pass freely across Ireland and into the EU, but goods passing between Britain and the North of Ireland must be checked. It was a solution intended to protect the integrity of Ireland and the Good Friday Agreement. Allowing the free passage of goods and people between the South and North of Ireland, one country partitioned against its will by Britain a century ago. Now, more than 7 billion euros in trade flows between the two parts of Ireland, and border communities rely on travelling back and forth freely. This protocol, then, is a piece of international law, agreed as part of Brexit. But now the British government wants to unilaterally remove itself from an international treaty by invoking the doctrine of necessity, essentially arguing that the consequences of the treaty for peace in Ireland are so severe that Britain is allowed to disregard its international obligations. In the House of Commons, Theresa May quickly demolished the government's right to invoke this doctrine of necessity. So let's also examine some of the other arguments for invoking the necessity defence. That defence cannot be claimed where the state invoking it has contributed to the situation of necessity. And again, in their legal position paper, the government sets out its argument that the peril that has emerged was not inherent in the protocol's provisions. I have to say to the minister that I find that a most extraordinary statement. The peril is a direct result of the border down the Irish Sea, which was an integral and inherent part of the protocol which the government signed in the withdrawal agreement. Now, it is possible, of course, that the government might say, oh, well, we knew about that, but we didn't think the DUP would react in the way that they have. Well, I say to the minister, they should have listened to the DUP and the many debates that went on the withdrawal agreement, because they made their position on the protocol very clear at that point, and it was not positive. In place of the protocol, the government wants to establish a green lane where some goods won't be checked between Britain and Ireland. And they want to do it in order to appease unionists in one part of Ireland. But in the recent elections to Stormont, 53 out of 90 seats were won by parties that favour the protocol. The elections were won overall by Sinn Féin, who fear a return to violence if any kind of hard border is erected between the south of Ireland and those six northern counties of Ireland still occupied by Britain. 
This is Sinn Féin's Vice President, Michelle O'Neill, speaking here after the bill was first published. The majority of people want the protocol to work. It's the best defence we have against the hardest possible Brexit. The majority of business community are saying that the protocol is working and affording them opportunities. We want to see more of that, but all that Boris Johnson is doing today is to further political instability and to create even more economic uncertainty for the, the days and weeks ahead. Do you believe what Boris Johnson is doing today is illegal? Yes, Boris Johnson's action is illegal. He is in clear breach of international law, regardless of the detail. He himself signed up to an agreement. He signed on the dotted line, and he is now legislating to breach that international agreement. This issue of the Northern Ireland Protocol has also led to the DUP refusing to form a power-sharing government in Stormont, a government that Sinn Féin, for the first time in history, would be entitled to lead. It's worth pointing out that the protocol was not imposed by the European Union. It was negotiated by none other than Boris Johnson. But now, when the government is in crisis, they seem to be in a hurry to unpick it. Why? Well, to avoid actually negotiating over it with the EU which they think would undermine the trumped-up notion of sovereignty, which is so precious to their rebellious backbenchers. Tellingly, Liz Truss didn't seem to care what Parliament had to say about the bill. Labour MP Chris Bryant tweeted, Very bad form. At Truss, Liz just left the chamber without listening to even two other speeches. Her bill gives enormous powers to the government without reference to Parliament, and she can't even be bothered to listen to Parliament. Ash, is this just another example of the old British Empire being willing to put lives on the line to defend its favoured communities, in this case, unionists in Ireland descended from British settlers? This is going to be the one time where I disagree with you a little bit, Barnaby, because actually Boris Johnson's government was very happy to sell out the unionists when it was politically expedient. Because the backstop was, I mean, this is a real season one throwback, right? The backstop. The backstop was Theresa May's way of squaring the circle of how do you have a customs and regulatory border between the United Kingdom and the EU when you have um, effectively no border at all, really, between the six counties and the, and the Republic of Ireland. So Theresa May comes with the backstop. But because ultimately the Vote Leave faction wanted to defenestrate her, they wanted to use Brexit as a means to carry out the Tories' favourite hobby, which is politically convenient regicide. The backstop had to go with Theresa May. So then you've got another question, which is, OK, so what do you do? If you can't have a hard border because that puts you in breach of the Good Friday Agreement and it will undoubtedly become a target for sectarian violence, and you don't want to have a border down the Irish Sea, which, you know, sells out the unionists, you, you really have to pick one of those two things. Boris Johnson and his lead negotiator, they both made the decision that the option was going to be effectively a kind of customs and regulatory border down the Irish Sea, which means that there are checks applied to goods which are likely or deemed to be likely to cross from the six counties to the Republic of Ireland. And now... This government is going, actually, that's a load of shit. This is a terrible deal. Acting out as though it's someone else's fault. Well, hang on. This was the famous oven ready deal, which every member of this cabinet stood by on a manifesto and got the British electorate to vote on. So even if you don't like it, it's got a very good mandate, both from the 2019 general election and the more recent Stormont elections. Uh, where you do have a majority for representatives who are in favour of the uh, protocol remaining in place. So I don't think that this is necessarily a kind of hangover from empire. I actually think what this speaks to is the you know ever-narrowing spiral of dysfunction which characterises post-2008 British politics. Because I think devoid of a single animating principle, a reason for the state and capital to do what it does, you don't have growth, you don't have rising wages, you don't have increases in standards of living, you just have lots of people being made a lot poorer and very few being made a hell of a lot wealthier. I think when neoliberalism has been so thoroughly discredited and yet it continues to lurch on and you know, re-embed and re-entrench itself, what you have is a political system which builds up a house of cards within a very short period of time only to knock it down again spectacularly and start all over again. I think that's been the defining feature of post-crisis politics in this country and with 
Boris Johnson and his band of toddlers at the helm, that's only going to get worse. See, yes, you're right, we do disagree a little, because it seems to me that this isn't so particular to our moment, that this is in fact always been the troubled history of this statelet called Northern Ireland. In the 70s, the British government sent in troops against the wishes of that unionist community, because the unionist community was launching a pogrom against Catholics. So that the, the problem has so long been that the British state established this small statelet they couldn't establish it just in the Protestant majority counties because it wouldn't have been big enough to function. So they included lots of Catholics who didn't want to be in it. And ever since they established this state, they've been locked into an awkward relationship with these often extreme elements of the uh, Protestant population, like the DUP, who have their very hardline demands, and the British state presenting a kind of balancing act. Uh, but it's a balancing act of their own making because they created this sectarian state. It's now the case that people in the north of Ireland are the only people in any of these islands who don't have abortion rights, uh, because people in the south of Ireland have campaigned and won them. People in Britain um, have had them since 1967 in some form. form. So isn't this just another example of the problems baked in to that awkward construction called Northern Ireland? I think think that's very true. I think you know, in terms of why there has to be a protocol in the first place, in terms of why you've got Westminster trying to square the circle of its, of its own trading preferences with the need for peace on the island of Ireland, of course, you're totally right. That is a, a colonial construction. But I'm just talking about this particular feature of having an agreement, which you stand on a manifesto in 2019, only say you're going to rip it up in 2022. That's a very, very short period of time in which nothing has really changed, right? Nothing has really changed. The protocol is functioning as everyone thought that it would. And because, you know, you've got the kind of, I guess, the the arsonists amongst Boris Johnson's own backbenchers saying this is absolutely dreadful, he's more than willing to rip it up. And I think that's something that's new, rather than why this is having to be administered in the first place. You're totally right on that point. Strikes are spreading. Workers are refusing to get poorer while prices rise and the public services we all need crumble. Now, a group that may surprise you have joined the fight back. Criminal barristers walked out today in a big strike that disrupted 80% of cases at London's Old Bailey. Well, in their fancy wigs and gowns, lawyers might seem like a privileged elite. But here's the tougher truth. Whether you face an eviction from your landlord, sexual harassment at work, racism from the police, or any other abuse, power has a free hand when the institutions to defend us are dismantled. So over the last decade, the Tories have attacked and undermined the legal system and slashed fees for lawyers. I'm joined now by a striking barrister, Russell Fraser from Garden Court Chambers. Russell, what are conditions currently like for lawyers? And why did 300 leave the profession last year? Well, thanks for having me on, first of all, Barnaby. It's a, this, this strike really is about decades of underfunding of the system, which has culminated in the crisis in which, as you've just said, people are leaving the profession in increasing numbers, in particular, junior barristers, junior criminal barristers who can expect in their first year to have a guaranteed income of around £12,000 and have to build a practice from there on. And it takes a good five years or so to do so. And many just can't uh, slog it out for that long. So we're seeing that although there's an image of high-paid lawyers, in fact, many earn £12,000 a year, under under 20000 very many are earning, especially those doing legal aid work uh, for uh, poorer people often. So why is this fight so important for all of us beyond just lawyers? Well, I think it takes a, it takes a number of features, really. First is that if we don't have uh, sufficient barristers to represent defendants, then those cases will stack up and, and the backlog, which already existed, has existed pre-COVID, will increase. People who are waiting for justice will have to wait for ever-increasing lengths of time and everyone involved will, will, will see a justice system continue to crumble. The you know We have a decrepit court to state. We have, as you, as you said, the people who are leaving in increasing numbers. And that means, of course, that only those will have access to the profession like it was many decades ago when it was the rich and the independently wealthy who could find themselves at, at the bar. One interesting thing today was I saw the RMT turning up to your picket lines to show support. Do you see this as part of a wider struggle? 
Well, undoubtedly, you know, I, personally, I'll support any worker who goes on strike in order to defend their terms and conditions and their, and their standards of living. Barristers, of course, aren't known for their uh, great outpourings of solidarity throughout the years. But I, you know, myself and my colleagues at the Haldane Society of Socialist Lawyers actually marched with the RMT last weekend uh, at the uh, TUC demo. I think it's right that we recognise that many people are in a similar position, that they're simply trying to ensure standards of living at an increasingly difficult time. So tell us, Russell, if the government gets its way, if you weren't on strike now or if you lose your strike, what kind of future awaits the British legal system? Why should we be so worried? It's difficult to predict. You know, there there are G4S and Circo are never uh, far away when it comes to looking at certain ways in which the system can be privatised. They are involved in transporting prisons. They're involved in the prison system itself. Years ago, there was a suggestion that they might even start to employ panels of lawyers in order to prosecute and defend cases. We cherish the independent bar for many reasons. One of the fact is that colleagues and I can appear in the same cases against one another because we're independent of one another and we're hopefully completely incorruptible in that respect. But if you start to privatise it increasingly, then of course clients will receive an inferior service. It will be a stack and high, sell and cheap sort of a system, which which has been mooted in the past. And if we don't get paid enough to ensure that we can devote adequate levels of time to an individual's case, then miscarriages of justice are what will result. And we have seen in the past where that leads. So we're seeing a backlog of, I think, 58,000 cases, lawyers not making minimum wage, and Russell warning us that if this continues, there just won't be enough lawyers with enough attention to take the cases to fight for people who need them. So the very most basic principles of access to justice are at stake here. Now, the Labour Party has at last taken a side between striking workers and profiteering bosses. Whose side have they chosen? Well, here's Shadow Foreign Secretary David Lammy explaining Labour's rail strike position. Do you support these strikes? No, I don't support strikes because uh, I I support the right to strike, of course. Uh, But it's very sad when any um, uh, union calls its members out on strike. It hurts working people who need to get to work by using the railway. And of course, those within the union are hurt um, as well. Lamy supports the right to strike. He just doesn't support anyone actually using that right. So what's the right to strike for? Rail bosses just made £500 million in profit subsidised by the state. They're putting up ticket prices in line with inflation while cutting real wages, which is a great recipe for raising their profits. And here's the rub. The RMT aren't even asking for a real pay rise. They're just asking for a slightly smaller real pay cut. The government is intervening to prevent that, precisely because they don't want to set an example to other workers that profits can be redistributed into higher wages if workers fight for it. That's the class politics of inflation. Prices rise, wages flatline, and bosses scoop up the difference in higher profit. Then the Tory party defends those bosses. What's the point of having a Labour party if it can't push for workers to get a bigger share? Instead, Lamy actively joins in the divide and rule strategy of the Tories, pitting commuters against rail workers. But falling pay for station cleaners won't mean higher pay for teachers or nurses, just higher profits for rail bosses. Striking is the only immediate tool that all workers have to redistribute wealth from powerful bosses. Next, Lamy was asked on the BBC about British Airways workers who've had their pay slashed by bosses by 10% while their energy bills soar. It's absolutely, it would not be right, it would not be responsible opposition if I suggested yes to every strike, you should get your... No one. So do you support them or not? No, I don't. No, I don't. It is a no. It's a categorical no. Why? Because I'm serious about the business of being in government, and the business of being in government is that you support negotiation. There you have it. Governing the British state necessarily means siding against workers, says David Lammy. 
Continuing his media round on Sky News, Lamy was asked about postal workers. Royal Mail made £700 million in profit last year, recently privatized, and they paid their CEO £1.5 million. Now, just like other bosses, that CEO wants to use inflation to push through real terms cuts to his workers' wages. Guess what David Lammy had to say? Are you going to back them if they ballot uh, for strike action? Every grown-up in the country watching this programme knows that this is a negotiation. Uh, And I'm afraid it is not always the position that one party to that negotiation gets what they want. It's a negotiation, and usually negotiation ends in compromise. That's the grown-up position. Tragically, it wasn't always like this. In those brief Corbyn years, David Lammy was more than happy to stand on picket lines. Here are two of his greatest hits. In 2016, and again in 2018, Lamy proudly stood on picket lines to support doctors and university staff, and he even tweeted about that. These days, he talks a different talk. Here he is again on Rupert Murdoch's Times Radio. This is not a moment for posturing and standing on picket lines um, um, uh, and forgetting the responsibility that you have um, if you hope to be uh, either prime minister or a minister running um, uh, this great country. The sad thing is, this is pure posturing from David Lammy. Standing on picket lines isn't some game, and it's not about reenacting the 1970s. It's a strategy now, in 2022, after 50 years of rising inequality, decades lost to austerity, and roaring pandemic profits, while workers' real wages are eroded. Strikes are an attempt to reset the balance in a country whose wealthy have had it all for far too long. The Tories are openly planning more anti-union laws to further defend the power of the rich against their workers. They want to introduce minimum staffing requirements to ban some workers from fully striking. David Lammy cannot imagine a Labour Party bringing all workers together against this great wealth grab. The choice is simple, and it was put by a real Labour leader, Dave Ward of the Communication Workers Union. If people look at the financial crisis 2008, the pandemic, uh, the cost of living crisis, the climate crisis, the only certainty in the UK at the moment, if we don't make a stand for all working people, is that the rich are going to get richer and the powerful are getting more powerful. And that's what we've got to address in the UK, including in how the economy operates. Meanwhile, the leader of one of Britain's biggest unions, Sharon Graham of Unite, pulled no punches in her response to David Lammy. David Lammy has chosen to launch a direct attack on British Airways workers. This is a group of workers who were savagely attacked by their employer during covid Fire and rehire led to thousands of unnecessary job cuts and pay being slashed. This dispute is not about a pay rise. It's about restoring money taken out of workers' pockets by an opportunistic employer. British Airways and its parent company, IAG, hold billions in reserves and assets, and they're predicting a return to profit this quarter. Supporting bad bosses is a new low for Labour, and once again shows that politicians have failed. It is now down to the trade unions to defend working people. We are their only voice. This is a seismic moment, and the battle lines are these. Will the rich, in government and in boardrooms, massively cut the living standards of the poor, or will we keep down inflation by cutting prices, profits, and rents that flow to a few? That's the choice, and the Labour Party leadership is missing in action. Those who stand in the middle of the road, get run over. Ash, David Lammy was very happy to posture, that's his word about uh, protests, he was happy to posture on the streets and cost Labour an election by marching for a people's vote to keep us in the EU. Why is it so much harder for him to support workers? These people are whoppers and they are self-serving and unlike political opponents who I can respect, who have principles which I think are detrimental to the public good, but they have those principles. The likes of David Lammy and Keir Starmer are motivated by nothing else than what they think of as being politically expedient at any given time. 
And you can see that in terms of his own weather veining on the issue of whether or not a serious party of government should be seen standing on picket lines. It wasn't that long ago that he was joining picket lines in his own constituency, uh, standing with junior doctors out on the picket lines, standing with striking lecturers, and plastered those images all over his social media. Similarly, Keir Starmer, in I think what is now going to go down in history as one of the most brazenly deceptive campaigns ever, when he was running to be Labour leader, one of the first things he says in one of his videos is, I'm Keir Starmer and I'm a proud trade unionist, whether that's doing legal observing on the whopping picket line and going on and on about how his Labour leadership would not simply stand up for trade unions when there's a photo opportunity, but stand shoulder and shoulder even when it gets tough. Those things melted away as soon as they decided to implement, which I think was their strategy all along, model of Labour leadership, which involves showing your belly the likes of Rupert Murdoch and Viscount Rothermere and going, oh, please don't kick it too hard, sir. And hoping that that's going to lead to a thumping election win in the majority and, you know, three back-to-back elections in a row like the hero Tony Blair. And I find it completely risible and contemptible that you could chuck your principles in the bin so readily as that. Because at least the Conservatives, they don't pretend to believe in this shit you know, and then throw it away the next day. They're like, no, when it comes to the battle between Labour and capital, we're with capital. Whereas the Labour Party, and this has always been an uncomfortable part of their history, as much as the representation of organised Labour has been a part of their history, the unfortunate truth is that the leadership has often been characterised by turning on the very people that they're supposed to represent in the interest of a couple more points in the opinion polls. Now, it hasn't even worked out that way. The latest polling for Keir Starmer has shown that he's dropped a point in his uh, net approval rating. So what does that tell you? It tells you that having no principles is considered worse than having bad ones. Stand up for something or you'll fall for anything. Precisely. They just have no interest in the present. They live still in a 1990s world where electability means moving to the right. And they are totally uninterested in a world of inflation pushing the cost of living up and profits soaring and the obvious possibility of assembling a coalition around working people who want better living standards for all of us, not rising rents and profits for a few. There's a huge political opportunity there. And uh, they're too busy telling us they're grown-ups to actually act like grown-ups and look the present in the face. Now, we're used to seeing grim behavior from the royals, whether it's Prince Andrew consorting with sex traffickers or family members making racist remarks to Meghan Markle. But usually, we only hear about the hangers-on, the irrelevant younger siblings and distant cousins. Now, we have a story that matters politically because it involves our future king. The Sunday Times has reported that Prince Charles accepted 3 million euros in cash from a dodgy Qatari politician, with the money handed to him on three different occasions. Once in a suitcase, then in a holdall, then in shopping bags from the luxury department store Fortnum and Mason. All were stuffed with 500 euro notes. This is the politician who gave him the money, Hamid bin Jassim Al Thani. He was Prime Minister of Qatar between 2007 and 2013, and he was implicated in a number of controversies. It's alleged that Qatar secretly funded the Al-Nusra Front, a Syrian branch of Al-Qaeda, and he was accused of kidnapping and torturing his former spokesperson, Fawaz al-Atiyah. His personal finances have also come under scrutiny. He's worth a reported $1.2 billion, and the leaked Panama and Paradise Papers showed his massive tax evasion, and he owns large swathes of London. So a good friend for Prince Charles. The Charities Commission has now announced that it will investigate Charles's acceptance of literal bags of money from this guy. And despite the fact that handing over millions of euros in cash is the style of criminal kingpins, Clarence House has insisted that everything was above board. Charitable donations received from Sheikh Hamad bin Jassim were passed immediately to one of the prince's charities who carried out the appropriate governance and have assured us that all the correct processes were followed. The British ruling class really knows how to talk. So why would one corrupt prince hand cash to another? Well, maybe Hamad was expecting a favor in return for the bribe. 
This isn't the first time that Charles has been accused of dodgy dealings with rich donors. Last year, it emerged that Charles's closest advisor, Michael Fawcett, agreed to arrange an OBE for a donor in exchange for large sums of cash donated to the Prince's foundation. Saudi businessman Mafuz bin Mafuz was applying for British citizenship, and he believed an honor would improve his application. Fawcett wrote to him in July 2014, saying, With regard to supporting a nomination for an honorary OBE for His Excellency, we would be very happy to send any such letter in due course outlining his philanthropy and ongoing generosity to the UK in heritage-led regeneration. I will come back to you when I have discovered more about the necessary process that needs to be followed. Another letter implicated Charles directly. You mentioned His Excellency's application for citizenship, and I can only reiterate to you that both our trustees, and importantly, His Royal Highness, support this application 100%, as there is no greater example of contribution than that of His Excellency. Mafuz was later awarded an honorary OBE in a secret ceremony. And earlier this year, the Metropolitan Police launched a criminal investigation into the allegations. Norman Baker is a Lib Dem former Home Office minister and a long-standing critic of the royal family. He spoke to the BBC's World at One about both cases. The immediate superficial response is this thing looks grubby and, and scuzzy, and we don't really think the heirs of the throne in this country should be behaving in a way accepting cash in Fort Mason bags behind closed doors in secret. So the, the optics are really terrible, but there are more serious issues here. One issue relates to uh, the fact that Prince Charles has had 95 meetings with Arab monarchies since 2011, an extraordinary number. And I think we need, need to know from Prince Charles and Clarence House on how many occasions Prince Charles has received money in these meetings for his good causes. The second issue is this, that uh, when I lodged a complaint with the Metropolitan Police last year in, in connection with uh, the Saudi billionaire, uh, Mahfouz, uh, Marais Mubarak bin Mahfouz, uh, and the impression given in a letter from Michael Fawcett that uh, there was a direct correlation between money given to the Prince's Foundation and uh, the attempt to give Mr. Mahfouz an, an elevated honour and also help with citizenship application. Uh, Prince Charles is very clear in his response to the media on that occasion. He did not get indirectly involved in dealings which solicited money for his foundation. But now he has, in the vernacular, been caught red-handed doing just that. And therefore, okay. I went to the Metropolitan Police this morning to ask them to take that, take that into account in their ongoing criminal investigation. These cases both seem to illustrate Charles's extraordinary casual attitude towards potential corruption. Perhaps that's not a surprise when you're brought up to regard yourself as more important than anybody in the room, surrounded by lackeys and yes-men drowning in unearned wealth. If corruption means protecting your friends, it's what monarchy is based on. This family once profited from slavery, and in the 1930s, we had a king who loved Hitler. The essential core of monarchy is a belief that those who do the work to keep society afloat are born inferior to a caste who live luxuriously off our labor. They used to say God put them there to justify their claim to be better than all of us. Ash, we're seeing lots of attacks on migrants and on the welfare state right now. Why does this one migrant family from Germany get to live on benefits for generations? Are they a model for welfare scroungers everywhere? Yes, absolutely. Um, if you are truly about the hustle, don't come to this country, you know, trying to make the most of it on your paltry asylum seekers benefit and, you know, maybe trying to work a couple of jobs in the grey economy so that you can line the pockets of a predatory landlord. The thing that you really should do is see if you can get shipped in in order to prevent a Catholic monarch from coming to the throne. That's really where the good money's at. When it comes to the royal family, the reality of who they are sits very uncomfortably against the myth because you're right, Barnaby, they're supposed to be better than us because they are anointed by God. That's the most important part of the coronation 
it's not the bit where the crown goes on the head of the king or queen. It's the part where they're anointed by holy oils and they're supposed to be literally transformed by the act. Because don't forget, the position of a monarch isn't solely to be head of state, it's also head of the church. So it's this idea that morally they are superior to the rest of us. Now, I don't know what it takes to raise kids and turn them into nice people because I don't have any kids. My cat's quite cool though. The one thing that I would say is really, really bad for children is if you put them in an environment where they are told they are literally better than everybody, that the absurd riches, the gold, the silks, the jewels, the palaces, the private jets, the servants, that Those are all things which should be theirs by birth. I don't think that that's something which creates well-adjusted human beings. And I also don't think that that creates human beings who have a tremendously good moral compass. And so I think that there are parallels between Prince Charles accepting these suitcases full of cash in the 500 euro denomination, which used to be known as the Bin Laden before it was discontinued because it was the favored banknote of international terrorists. You know, the same logic which has Prince Charles accepting suitcases of cash, you know, his former secretary, Michael Fawcett, arranging an honor for another Gulf state oligarch. It's the same logic which led to Prince Andrew cultivating a friendship with the super rich pedophile financier, Jeffrey Epstein. It's the same logic which had Princess Margaret accept a property on the private Caribbean island of Mystique. There's nothing private about it. It's just something that was stolen during colonialism. And it's also the same logic which allows the queen who behind the edifice of being the nation's favorite grandma, you know, primus inter nanas, she's able to use her constitutional role to protect the assets and the interests of her and her family. So far from being morally superior to all of us, I would say that this is one of the most morally decrepit families this country has to offer. I think they just sit somewhere above Fred and Rosemary West, but not by that much. I'm conflicted following Ash's comments about whether to regard the royal family as very effective uh, benefit fraudsters or as just an ordinary German mafia dynasty. Well, staying on this topic of the monarchy, we've had new revelations about a Mrs. Elizabeth Windsor, the Queen, interfering in legislation. Queen's consent is an archaic power that gives one woman the unique right to see laws that may affect her property and powers. She gets to see them before they take effect and to change them secretly before Parliament ever sees those laws. Now, The Guardian has published a confidential briefing note written by Holyrood's civil servants in Scotland which confirms that Mrs. Windsor has made use of this power. So what did she use it for? Well, she's been doing just what striking workers do, defending her class, her property, her interests. The difference is that her interests really are directly opposed to all of ours. Like when she successfully lobbied last year to exempt land that she owns from laws to cut carbon emissions. This isn't new. Mrs. Windsor has also exempted herself from laws banning discrimination on grounds of race or sex. Until the late 1960s, her courtiers even banned, quote, colored immigrants or foreigners, their words, from serving this woman in her palaces. And if you want to find out about these things, tough luck. The royals have also exempted themselves from freedom of information law. We have a hereditary transfer of constitutional power controlled by an inbred cartel at the very top of our society and at the very heart of all of our institutions. If that doesn't say that the British state is one big stitch up to protect the interests of a wealthy few, I don't know what does. Now, again, this is where you see this huge disjuncture between the myth of the queen, really, I should be saying the myth of the crown and the reality of the crown. I think that. Um, Queen Elizabeth II has played a blinder when it comes to the media, because of course she comes to the throne in 1952. Mass media isn't really what it would then become, but it's beginning to mushroom. And she's a very effective utilizer of that burgeoning industry. And she presents herself as kind of, you know, a nice woman who any of us could know. So the Queen's Christmas speech becomes televised, broadcast into the living rooms of the nation. She is presented as 
an almost entirely depoliticized figure. And it's happening during that time because, of course, empire, at least formally, is being wound up. So you no longer have this idea of Britannia ruling the waves. So what is Britannia? It's a kind of nice old lady in a slightly shabby sitting room, right? It's a very, very neutered image of crown power. But actually, when you look behind the surface of, you know, the queen being first amongst grannies, you know, primus inter nanas, behind the surface is a very ruthless political operator. So you can see that in terms of using this power of queen's consent, which in Scotland is known as crown consent, which means that the queen is legally able to scrutinize and indeed send back bills which could mess with her own financial interests. So one of the laws in which she used the power of queen consent is to secure um, an exclusion from a law, which would mean that private estates would have to be able to install pipes which could make sure that they run on renewable energy for you know transitioning away from fossil fuels. There have also been ones which make her financial arrangements and tax arrangements opaque, whereas most uh, other people of that level of wealth would have to be you know that bit more transparent about it. Very, very ruthless way of controlling not just her own financial interests, but also the image presented to the country, a very neutered image of crown power, which allows it to survive despite all of the other kinds of social, technological, and political upheavals of the 20th century. Now, I think that there's an interesting thing that happens when we look at all of these stories together. When you look at the Queen's use of Queen's consent, when you look at Prince Charles just kind of taking in these suitcases of grubby money and indeed prince andrew which is you know the queen is not long for this world she's you know got a few years in her left at best and then what you're going to have in terms of the person coming to the throne it's not a youngish woman you know a young wife and mother it's an old man who spent his entire life waiting for his mum to die who's also been tarnished through successive scandal now some of that scandal is tabloid fodder, the affair with Camilla, tampon gate, you know, some of it is a sort of peeling back of the veil. And you see just how fucked up these people are to members of their own family in terms of his relationship with, of course, uh, Diana, and also his now, you know, rather strained and estranged relationship with his son, Prince Harry. But then you've got the third aspect, which is particularly difficult for Prince Charles, which he has never seemed to take the steadfast neutrality of the monarch that seriously. There's the famous Black Spider memos where he has supposedly been lobbying governments on matters close to his heart. You've now got this issue of, you know, taking in suitcases full of cash. So he's going to come to the throne of somewhat tarnished figure. And in order for him to sort of pull off the incredible decades long heist that his mum, Queen Elizabeth II has been able to, you're going to see, I think, the consent manufacturing machine of the newspapers, broadcast media having to kick into overdrive. Even then, I don't think it's going to be quite the same. Following a week of thrashing politicians and commentators in the mainstream media, RMT General Secretary Mick Lynch appeared at a rally in London this weekend. And true to form, Mick Lynch gave a barnstorming speech. The super rich are getting richer and richer year after year. The workers are getting poorer year on year. And what are we saying? We refuse to be poor anymore. We can't afford to give you a pay rise. I've never heard such a load of nonsense in all my life. These men and women from Mighty, we've taken Mighty on at St Pancras. We've taken them on in King's Cross. We'll take them on in Paddington. We'll take them on anywhere that they come onto the railway. Because this is the method of super-exploitation. Outsourcing is the biggest evil in the workplace in this country. You don't have to be a social scientist to work out who's getting these poor contracts. The black people, the migrant people, the people from minorities are suffering disproportionately. And we've got to stand up and say no to that structural racism. Keir Starmer and others, they're hesitating. I don't know why they're hesitating. If he could draw a crowd like this with what he says, he'd be doing well. He must win, but we've got to push him and persuade him to get into a position where he's in the front rank, front rank with you, all of you. Helpless, assisting with us, 
identifying with our causes, identifying with equality in the workplace, identifying with unity. We are a rainbow. We come from all over the world. And everybody's welcome in this country and wants to earn their living. Through our movement, we bring everyone together in the workplace, in our communities, in our churches, our temples, our mosques, wherever we are active. We bring unity. We play sport together. We love one another. So I'm telling the employers now and the government, we will negotiate, but we will not surrender. No compulsory indemnities, agreed terms and conditions, and a pay rise that suits the cost of living crisis. Those are simple demands. Give it to us or there'll be more strike action through the summer. So let's campaign. Let's fight. Let's win. Mick Lynch is so confident, not because he's had any special media training, but because he knows what he stands for. He knows who he stands for. He's been doing it all his life since he was a blacklisted construction worker, then working on Eurostar in the 90s. He's been standing up for something called the working class. And where politicians think that's just one group of workers pitted off against another, he knows he stands for the vast majority of humanity, people who want to live and, as he said, love freely, people who don't want to be oppressed and exploited. His reference to Mighty in that speech is about another set of striking workers who joined his rally. They're from St. George's Hospital in Tooting, mostly ethnic minority workers, and their dispute is with the outsourcing giant Mighty overpaying conditions. They're demanding that their contract should be brought back in-house at the hospital. So at a moment when the government thinks racism will win it votes, deporting desperate refugees to Rwanda, here's the real alternative. A politics of solidarity, opposing every form of exploitation and oppression because we win together or we're divided and we lose. This, not just flag-waving and jingoism, this is the greatest tradition of the British working class and it can terrify the powerful. Here's a worker, Mick Lynch, who knows what it is to be shoved around and abused. So with passionate fury, he hates structural racism and he says nobody is illegal. Ash, Mick Lynch stood in front of an RMT banner with pictures of James Connolly, the Irish anti-colonial revolutionary socialist, and Claudia Jones, the black communist and mother of the Notting Hill Carnival. In culture war Britain, isn't that supposed to be impossible? Yes, I believe Nadine Dorries' brain is exploding right now. (laughs) There's so much to say about Mick Lynch, so I'm going to try and order my thoughts in a way that makes sense, but I get a bit excited and start stumbling over myself. But let's start with his vision of who the working class are. Because one of the things about how culture wars operate is that it presents different identity categories as mutually exclusive. So you can be black, brown, cosmopolitan, pro-BLM, or you can be white working class. Now, what both of those things do is they take structural positions, which are shaped by your position within the economy, within the body politic, how you're treated by institutions, and it transforms it into identity, something which is primarily about you rather than the society you live in. And the second thing it does, particularly with the formulation of white working class, is that's not a way of talking about working class people who happen to be white. It's a way of stripping class content from even the label of working class, because you turn it into almost a minority ethnic status. So by doing that kind of cultural formulation and by opposing these groups, you restrict their power. You take away their power. You take away the analysis of class from race and you take away the analysis of race from class and you present to mutually uh, oppositional groups who actually have very shared interests. Now, I hear what you're saying, which is, you know, this is the best tradition of the British working class. I would say it's the best tradition, sure, but it's not the only one. You, of course, had dockers for Enoch after Enoch Powell's, you know, notorious rivers of blood speech. You had some sections of the trade union movement coming out and marching for Enoch Powell. You also had sections of the trade union movement organized under the banner of British Jobs for British Workers. So there are elements of the trade union movement where, yes, the logic of nationalism and indeed racism 
was embraced because the promise of racism was that it would deliver better conditions for white working class people at the expense of the black, brown and migrant working class. So that is also a British tradition, which Mick Lynch, by standing in front of that banner of James Connolly and Claudia Jones, by talking about we are a rainbow, by observing that the worst contracts are going to go to black, brown and migrant workers, by saying anyone who wants to come here is welcome, no human is illegal, is a repudiation of that culture war opposition between the white working class and, you know, white BLM, black, brown, cosmopolitan, but it's also a repudiation of that racist tradition which has existed within the trade union movement. And I've got to say, it's something which I find incredibly moving. Like my grandma and my mom, when they came back to this country, which was in the early 70s, they subsequently became active in the trade union movement. The reason why I say came back to this country is that my grandma came to this country in the early 50s, then uh, went and lived abroad for a bit, and then they came back after she separated from my grandfather. And they became active within the trade union movement. And it was a fight. It was a fight to have Black and Asian representation and to organize within the trade union movement against racism. It was such a huge fight. And to see someone like Mick Lynch, who is the most popular left-wing person in the country at the moment. I mean, you know, he's got the kind of approval ratings that Keir Starmer would absolutely kill for. To see somebody who is white, you know, is bald, like speaks with a Cockney accent, standing up so vociferously for anti-racism and more importantly, not leaving it as a kind of identity politics sideshow, but putting it front and center and integrating it within a class analysis, I find so, so moving because for me personally, it allows me to sort of reflect back on some things my mom, my grandma told me and just think, actually, there has been progress, there has been change. And while, yes, the Conservative Party in this country is trying to, you know, take us backwards into feudalism, there are sections of the left and, you know, huge swathes of the trade union movement, which has learned and grown and progressed and become better. And I think that Mick Lynch does embody the very best of those working class traditions in his repudiation of the worst. There is nothing more beautiful than solidarity when we choose to construct our interests, not through loyalties to those above us in hierarchies, but by linking arms with others oppressed and exploited and dreaming together of a different kind of world. That's why in the YouTube chat, Danakist says, I would run through a brick wall if Mick Lynch asked me to, and I could do it too. That's how powerful his rhetoric is. Thank you so much. And Jeb Supertramp with five pounds says, like the Scousers recently, do you think we should all start booing the national anthem? You know, importantly, that's not about hating this country. It's about opposing the kind of hierarchical institutions which say, you don't love the country, you just love one family. God save the queen. We love this country. We love everyone in it. And we don't just want to celebrate a powerful few. Thank you so much, Ash, for joining me this evening. It's been so great to have you. Thank you for having me. Can I just say, I would never boo the national anthem. Talking the Hardest is a great song and gigs deserve our respect. These are the kinds of cultural references Ash insists on making that are totally lost on me. Thank you to everyone for tuning in this evening. If you're new, please hit that subscribe button. Michael Walker will be back on Wednesday on this channel at 7pm. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navara Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.